Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get on with the interview, you clearly like listening to sword-related stuff, so I think you should check out my audiobook bundle of the theory and practice of historical martial arts. This includes the ebook and the audiobook version narrated by Kelly Costigan. You can find it at guywindsor.net forward slash TSG22. That's the sword guy initials plus the year, so TSG22. That link will get you 20% off the list price for the next two weeks only. That's up until September 15th, 2022. Roland Varchika described the book as a must-read for beginners and advanced practitioners alike, and he should know. So toddle along to guywindsor.net forward slash TSG22 for 20% off the Theory and Practice of Historical Martial Arts audiobook bundle. I'm here today with Carrie Baker, who is a data scientist and swordswoman who writes appallingly advanced data analysis articles for Sword STEM. I'll be asking her to explain them here. So without further ado, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Guy. I'm really excited to be here. It's an excellent opportunity to just talk about statistics and swords and all sorts of fun stuff. Right. And I think you're going to be explaining quite a lot of it because um, I haven't studied maths for about 30 years. That's okay, we'll get you up to speed. (laughs) Splendid. Um, Just to start off, whereabouts in the world are you? So I'm in Mesa, Arizona. Um, Mm -hmm. The club I fight with is Mord Howe, and that's under Brittany Reeves and Kyle Griswold. And regular listeners to the show will recognize Brittany's name because she has been on the show, and what an excellent guest she was. Yeah, she's a great instructor too. I I can imagine. Um, So is that how you got started? You just showed up to her class one day or is is there a backstory? No, there's definitely a bit of history and backstory. Um, I actually started HEMA in 2014. Um, I went to a Comic-Con and one of the sword fighting groups in the area was doing a demonstration there. And um, at the time I was doing Wing Chun and really into martial arts. So um, just seeing the sword fighting looked really cool and my martial arts mindset just went, ooh, I really want to try that out. And so the very next weekend I was at the sword practice. Um, you know, I Excellent. left I left for various reasons. Um and, you know, back in September, October of uh twenty twenty one, I just kinda went, Oh, I, I kind of missed this. Let's let's see what's going on and found out that Mord Howe is been around um and they were close to me so just signed back up excellent and what what kind of swords do you prefer do you have a particular period or a particular weapon um so mordhow is mainly a kdf school uh studying longsword occasionally we bring out the messers or the sword and buckler um some pole arms occasional dagger thrown in there um on my own, though, I've been studying um, small sword, rapier, and I've been getting into um, dual wielding. And I do that with either arming swords or basket hilt swords. Um, oh, cool. 
It's really fun. Okay. So, so you're studying small sword and rapier on your own. Excellent. What, um, what, what sources are you using? So it's actually not 100% on my own. Um, Jastinder Singh, he's out of New Mexico. He came to Mord Howe when I was trying to figure out small sword and he was like, Oh, let me help you. Um, so he and I, he sends me like videos and instructions, um, on how to do rapier and small sword techniques. Um, and I'll send him video back. He'll mark it up and analyze it and tell me what I'm doing right and wrong. So kind of like a distance learning thing. Um, it's wow. really fun. Um, that, that is a lot of work he's doing. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> I really, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, uh, Mord Howe, we're not a rapier school. We're not a small sword school, despite the fact that I'm trying really hard to uh, start our rebel contingent of small sworders. Um, I mean, you, you can have, surely, I mean, you know, Brittany's a nice person. She'll say, you know, if you want to have a study group inside the club, I'm sure she'd be fine with it. Um, we have free sparring days. We have time mm -hmm. after class where it's pretty much anyone gets to do whatever they want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so combat con is, um, coming up and they have a small sword competition and Mord Howe, despite the fact that we don't teach small sword has the most people in the small sword competition. <laughs> um, That's classic. You're starting so, a rebellion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I love small sword. Brittany says that none of us are her children anymore. Um, <laughs> so, no, it's a, it's a good time. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe we'll pop off and do a little small sword study group. Um, it'll kind of be everyone figuring it out um, from text or, you know, what I can explain that Justinder has uh, taught to me. So, Yeah, it's like I've never produced anything on Small Sword because I find the original sources, like Angelo's School of Fencing, for example, they're so absolutely transparent and easy to use that it feels to me like any work I would do to, like, explain it in videos or in a book or whatever would be kind of a waste of time because you can just pick up the book and just copy it. Um, yeah, for me. For me, like I'm a, I feel like I'm a visual learner, um, mm -hmm. or I have to be like doing it as I'm reading it. It's really hard to like hold a book in your hand and move <laughs> yeah. around. Um, book, book in one hand, so, sword in the other. It's tricky. Yeah. So having having the videos um, makes it so much easier for me. So, so I'm just I'm really appreciative of all the work that he puts in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he and he's. It, is, it does make it easier for people to, I mean, it's easier to copy a movement off a video than it is off a, out of a book, that's for sure. Um, but it, it's funny because I've got uh, a 1740 Girard behind me and I've got, you know, and it, that's in French, but it's been translated by um, Phil Crawley and at least most of it has. And, you know, it's like Angelo, it's like you can just read it and it's a, it's so much easier than working with the medieval stuff. <laughs> Because he just ex they just explain everything. They go into all this detail about okay, hold your hand with the nails down, and you know the parry from tears to, to cart moves four inches, and I mean it's like boom, 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 boom. Oh, it's really that detailed. That's interesting. Oh my god, I... and Angela particularly, yeah, just it's incredibly detailed. Yeah, I'll admit I haven't looked at the small sword manuals, so I'm not sure about them, but. That's so interesting that it's so detailed that it gets down to the number of inches you move. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, and sometimes, yeah, just for fun in, in class, if I'm teaching some all sort, I'll get a ruler out and get, get people go from tears to cart and like, you know, is it exactly four inches? Well, of course, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be exactly four inches, but it's, it's like when they have the text that clear, it's just yeah. super nice to be able to, you know, to kind of work from that level of detail. It makes life much easier. Um, anyway, so you got started with historical martial arts by basically seeing a, um, uh, demonstration at, at a, a comic con, right? Yes. Okay. Now I've spent quite a lot of time demonstrating at events like that, and it's it's surprisingly effective, right? Because for many people going to events like that, they're like, "Oh my god, I had no idea this even existed. Now I know it exists. I want to go and do it." Uh, <laughs> but it's not. An, it, I only ever went the first time because I was inviting some of my students who were organising the event, and I was like. Yeah, actually, I'll come along and do a demonstration because of it. Um, and then it became a regular thing because it was so effective. So, uh, it's, it's always nice to hear that, that you know, people have been sort of brought into the fold through this kind of outreach into other communities. Yeah, I know I wasn't the only one that kind of got pulled in from that same demonstration. There were probably about half a dozen people or so that showed up, um, because they saw it at Comic Con. So. I think it's definitely an effective marketing strategy. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so how did you get into writing articles for Sword Stamp? Um, so Sean Franklin and Brittany Reeves, they've known each other for a very long time. They were in Blood and Iron together when they were in Canada. Um, and so Sean is kind of like a distance instructor for Mordhau. Um, he's done, he did a bunch of videos during the pandemic, um, and that sort of thing. Um, but we have this discord server for Mordhau and on there, we talk about anything and everything. Um, very little of it actually relates to sword fighting. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Sean and I seem to have the same taste in video games. So we just started talking like, private messaging about video games and stuff like that. And one day he's like, I hear you like data. Here's, here's some data. And I was just like, Oh, cool. Um, nice data set. Uh, let's see what I can do with this. And so I threw together some graph, um, for the data and showed it to Sean, maybe a couple weeks later. And he just said, Oh, wow. I didn't actually expect you to do anything with this data, um, do you want to write a sword stem article about it? And I had never written articles before, so I was very apprehensive about it at first. But after about a day or two thinking about it, I was just like, yeah, let's let's go ahead and take this opportunity. It sounds like it could be a good time. Um, so that translated into the first article I wrote, which is, uh, I think the title is something like, hey, where the HEMA women at? Um, oh, I'm good. yeah. I have it. I have it here to to ask you about about these kind of details of that one. Um, so, what is the um, okay from the article? It says, or you wrote, in the U.S., women make up about fifteen percent of an event's participants. If a women's tournament is offered, if all events offered women's tournaments in 2019, there would have been about 155 more participants across these events. That's I mean, that's fascinating to me. So what yeah, is going on so, there? So basically, um, well, let me kind of like explain a key point yeah. about that article. Um, Please do. So with the data we have, we don't have 
any documentation on if the person is male or female. Um, that's just not a piece of data that's collected. You don't indicate your okay. gender when you register for tournaments. It's not, it's not gathered. So the way we identified women is if they participated in a women's tournament. Right. Um, so, you know, there could be a woman who participates only in the mixed tournament. We wouldn't be counting her as a woman for that. <laughs> okay. In, in that um, data, because, because, because the, the yeah, data is not disaggregated by sex. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that's one of the key points about that article is we're identifying women as being people who entered a women's tournament. So okay. the numbers in the article are a little underrepresentative because there's some sure. women who just don't participate in women's tournaments. They like the mixed right. ones. Or, or they um, go to the event and don't do the tournament at all. They do classes instead. Right. So so that's, that's how we determine... Um, Who's a woman? Honestly, it's as good a definition as any. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but some people, when they were reading it, didn't quite pick up on that nuance. Um, right. So I just wanted to make it clear that that's sure. what's going on here. Um, so basically, um, the idea is if we look at tournaments that have both a mixed and a women's tournament, um, the number of participants in the women's tournament makes up about 15% of the overall tournament participation. Okay. And so if you look at tournaments that didn't have a women's event, um, you just add the extra on to make it be that 15% additional participation. And okay. that's how we got to the 155 number. Okay. Um, wow. So... I mean, you're a data scientist by profession, right? That's that's your actual yes. job. Healthcare healthcare data guru, according to my research. <laughs> yes, that is what the uh, bio on sword stem says. Right. So, what what exactly does that entail? Um. So, I've been working in healthcare data analytics since I graduated uh, undergrad, mm -hmm. and I've worked in everything from healthcare quality to finance to insurance. Um, I've worked for healthcare systems, so operational, clinical. Um, currently, what I do is I work with something called social determinants of health. And what that is, is it's things that affect your health that are not necessarily part of like your physical attributes. So, well, for like, example, like, like income, oh, for example, like, like income? Yes, income, like income, like rich people live longer, generally speaking. Yes. So like income, um, one of the ones that I like to think about is where you live and what kind of transportation you have access to. Maybe you live 20 miles from a grocery store, don't have a car. Um, there isn't a good bus line to get to the grocery store. So you have to go to the gas station. That's a five minute walk. What can you get out of the gas station? Well, chips and hot dogs or something like that. That's oh, wow. not going to manage your diabetes. <laughs> um, so yeah I can, that's, yes that's the kind of thing that um i work with okay um so would you choose an area to live based on how long it's likely to make you live <laughs> um 
you know, you you could do that. Um, make sure you're in a walkable distance to like the necessities, like um, like your grocery store or your doctor or something along those lines. Make sure you're close to a public library. They have plenty of resources for people who might not have internet access. Um, mm -hmm. So there's just tons of considerations when you're thinking about where do I want to live? Maybe you want to go live in Portland, Oregon, because they actually have reliable public transportation versus Arizona, where it's not so great. <laughs> so I've, I've never been to Arizona, but I have been to Texas. And my feeling in Texas was basically, if you don't own a car, you're dead. Uh, that's, that's not, it's not quite that bad in Arizona, but a car, I would say, is almost a necessity unless you live in very specific pockets of the different cities. Okay. Yeah, and it's funny because you know, in the UK we're sort of spoiled for public transport. Like we have like trains and buses and you know all sorts of ways of getting around the place. Um, and the distances are a lot shorter. Like you know, my parents live three hundred miles away, and that is a really really long way in this country. That's like a six hour drive, and that's like incredibly far. <laughs> Whereas you know, I have I have friends who who drove ten hours just to get to a sword fighting event. Yeah, uh, my threshold for whether or not I fly or drive to a sword fighting event is if Google Maps says it takes more than 16 hours. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> so if Google Maps says you can drive it in less than 16 hours, you won't bother getting a flight. Wow. Uh, 14 to 16, I look at the prices, but 16 is like, no, I absolutely must fly. Wow, that is, that is probably the most American thing I have ever heard. <laughs> Although, actually, the Australians would probably feel pretty much the same way. Yeah, they've got a pretty big country there, too. Yeah. Um, so, so you have these, these like, data science skills, which is something I am completely unversed in. I mean, I, I should know the difference between mean, median, and mode, but that's about it, right? <laughs> um, oh, and, I, and I'm familiar with standard deviations. Okay, cool. Um, but I'm guessing that quite a lot of... The listeners have no no idea what they are really. So, um, what you're doing with with your articles is you're taking these these data sets. Well, okay, here's a thought: Where does the data actually come from? How is it collected, and how do you get access to it? So, fortunately, uh, Sean built Hema scorecard, so he has all the data from all the tournaments. That so, you what is what is Hema scorecard? Oh, uh, Hema Scorecard is a free tournament software um, that, at least in the U.S., is very prevalent, uh, has very high usage at tournaments. Um, so basically, um, you can keep score, you can keep time, you can say specifically, oh, it was a thrust to the head versus a cut to the body. Um, not all... Not all event organizers use it the same. Um, mm -hmm. So sometimes there isn't that specific level of detail of thrust versus cut or head versus arm. Um, but at minimum, what you'll have is the number of points per exchange. Um, okay. So, um, so I just had a sudden thought. You'll have the, the names of the competitors, right? Yes. Okay. And most names are gendered. Well, you'd they? have to make some assumptions. You'd have to make you'd have to make some assumptions, and there would have to be some that you couldn't um, 
you couldn't determine. But if you were looking to to get more granular information on the on the genders of people coming to the tournaments, um, have you thought about using sort of separating that by name? Um, you know, it would be a really really big assumption to do that. Um, I don't think I would necessarily be comfortable doing that but i suppose if someone wanted to do that they could okay all right um, so that was just that was just an idea that came to me in passing because you know if you're trying to figure out certain things and the data hasn't been collected it might be there some some other way um, yeah i mean the there was one thing that i was thinking about on how to get better information on if someone is a woman um so with the data set i used for the article we had discussed um we just had um, that data actually came from HEMA ratings. Um, HEMA ratings okay. has more data than HEMA scorecard. Um, more tournaments okay. send their data to HEMA ratings than use HEMA scorecard. And just, just, just for people who don't know what HEMA ratings is, um, could you explain? Oh, yes, yeah, sure. So um, I forget the guy's name, but... Um, it's basically a website that tracks um, performance at various HEMA events and ranks you um, amongst all other HEMA competitors. And they have it broken down by weapon type. So you can see what your ranking is for longsword. You can see what your ranking is for single stick. You can see what your ranking is for rapier, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. Um, okay. So... That's uh, that's HEMA ratings. Okay, and that's and that's completely separate to the HEMA scorecard thing, which is that's software that um, Sean develops for basically running tournaments on. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because so, quite quite a lot of the listeners aren't involved in the tournament scene at all. I mean, for some, they're going to be like, "Oh yes, we know this already." Guy, shut up. Come on, let's get on with the interesting stuff. <laughs> but actually, I know I know because I get emails from from listeners like telling me these things that, you know, quite a few of them don't actually practice historical martial arts at all. Quite a few of them just do like research and what have you. They're not interested in tournaments. So you know, there's, there's quite a lot of, quite, quite a broad range of, of listeners. So I'm going to be asking you to define quite a lot of things. No, I'm, I'm happy to. And that, that makes complete sense. I mean, at Mordhau, we probably have about 40 to 50 people, uh, in our club at any given time and maybe about 10 of us go to tournaments. So right. it makes sense that, you know, not everyone would be well-versed in, in tournament lingo. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the, the data set, um, that one actually, the data set for the women's article that came from HEMA ratings. So what we had was the name of the tournament, the number of people in the mixed long sort event, and the number of people in the women's longsword events and the number of people who were in both mixed and women's. So that's what the data set looked like. We didn't have um, like specific names of people. I know the EU has like much stronger privacy laws than mm -hmm. the US when it comes to data and data collection and data dispersion. Um, so Sean doesn't tend to get data from HEMA ratings that's like by person um, sure. it's rolled up yes. to, protect, to protect privacy um, yeah. but one thing that I was kind of thinking of in order to maybe better capture women's participation is look at the history of a particular fighter 
and see if they had ever participated in a women's tournament because just because they're not participating in the women's tournament at event X doesn't mean they didn't participate at event Y. And so you can Right. So you can use the event Y to to inform the data from event X. Exactly. Hey, that's, a, that's not a bad idea. Um, so um, I have here, I, I mean, I've, I've tried to read <laughs> your articles on Swordstem and, you know, they're, they're fascinating and, and well-written and have amusing memes and stuff in them as well. So I would totally recommend that people go and read them. Um, but honestly, it's much easier, just like for you, um, getting small sword from a book is maybe not optimal. You'd rather have someone send you videos. Um, reading your articles to understand what's in them is not optimal. I'd rather have you explain it to me. Um, so you're using data from um, the uh, Sean's app to talk about predicting doubles. How do you do that? So um, as I said in HEMA scorecard, basically the the data that is always there is what the outcome of an exchange in a match is. Right. So it'll say whether there were points, maybe penalties, or if there was a double. Um, so that's information that we have access to. And okay. doubles are always very interesting to me um, because people can double out of tournaments. And I've been fortunate enough not to have doubled out of any uh when you say doubled out of tournaments, could you just explain what that is? Oh, sure. Um, so some tournaments have rules that if you have a certain number of doubles, then you both lose the match. And okay. for those people who aren't familiar with what a double is, it's basically you hit each other in the same tempo. Um, okay. So basically, you're both killing each other at the exact same time. Um, and, you know, it's some people say that it's worse to lose by doubling out than it is just to, you know, lose Get eaten. Yeah. by, by <laughs> not even scoring any points. Um, it, it's better to have zero points on the board than it is to double out in some people's minds. So I just always found this to be a very fascinating idea. And I thought, well, maybe if we could predict which scenarios um, might lead to doubles, then we can train it out of people or be like, Aha. Hey, hey, you know, the data says uh, that you're at risk of doubling. So maybe try not to. Um, so that okay. was, that was kind of the idea that I had when I went down this, this rabbit hole of trying to predict doubles was to see if there's anything that can inform coaching or play strategies or mindset or, something of that nature um, to help prevent doubling. Is that, did you find anything? I was able to find a method that predicts doubles with a decent amount of success. Um, however, the way that the method works is that it's a black box. You don't really know, um, you don't really know the factors that go into the decision that the predictive model outputs. Okay, so, so hang on. So how how does it predict doubles um, after the fact? Because yeah, you, you have the data after the fight is over, you have the data, and you have the data of all these fights, and 
you're using that data to say, well, okay, this, if this fencer and that fencer fence under this rule set, they are much more likely to have to double out than say if this fencer was fencing this other fencer over here. Is that, is so, that what you're talking about? Yeah. So basically the way that the, um, the way that the predictive model is set up is that, um, well, the, the articles kind of look at doubles in, in three different ways. Um, so this is, this is across two different articles on sword stem. The first article predict or tries to see if we can predict how many doubles will occur in a match mm-hmm. and how many doubles will occur in a tournament. And that, that attempt was completely un- unsuccessful. Um, okay. All of the models were terribly unpredictive, um, but you know we decided to uh, write up the article anyway, just because it's oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a good um, idea. You know, a, a lot of research really just goes into the successes, and so no one really understands what was attempted and didn't work. Um, there's a huge phenomenon in academia called positive publication bias, where right only positive results get published. Um, so, um, you know, I thought it would be a good idea just to say, you know, look, this was tried. It didn't work, but, you know, sometimes even knowing what didn't work is helpful. Of course it is. And it's like when doing research and you, you, you're figuring out, you know, how a particular technique in a book is done. Um, it's really, really useful to find out that it's not this way because it doesn't work. So you can just forget about it and move on to the next way of trying to do it. And eventually you find one that actually does work and that's maybe the right answer. But like your, your negative results are at least as important as the positive ones. Exactly. I, I fully believe that. Um, and you know, that's, that's actually one of the things that I've complimented Sean on is because he regularly writes articles where he says, Oh, I did this and didn't see anything. And Sword Stem is very unique in that it has a number of articles where, you know, non result um yeah. non results are published. But yeah, um, but, so it's great. And and even even like these non results, somebody looking through it with the right kind of I don't know, data sciencey brain might look at it and get an idea for a different approach that might actually yield a result. And they don't have to go through all the stuff you just did because they know that doesn't work. And so it saves them time and effort and makes getting to the truth much faster. Brilliant. Yep. That's that's the idea. Um so um so those were the first two attempts I did. And then the third mm-hmm. one was predicting if an exchange will result in a double. Um, okay, how and, do you that? Um, everything that goes into the prediction is something that you would have at the start of the exchange. So, for right. example, something that you would know at the start of the exchange is who has what point. Um, what, yep. what's, the, what's the point? Have they had any doubles before? Um, what was the outcome of the prior exchange? For example, was the prior exchange a scoring exchange? Was it um, was it a double? Was it a no exchange? Was it the start of the match? Mm-hmm. Um, we also have information on um, like 
how many matches each fighter had fought before their current one. Um, we know the number of exchanges that have already happened. Um, like my, when I started thinking about this, um, I was thinking, well, I personally am more likely to double if I'm tired. Yeah. So just kind of thinking about things that, um, that indicate whether or not someone is tired, like how long has this match been going on? How many fights did I fight previously? Um, like sometimes you fight back to back matches. So are you in your second match of a back to back, um, situation? So these are the kind of things that, um, you have information on. Right. And you say it's a black box. What does that mean exactly? Because presumably you understand how it works. Um, no. <laughs> really? Okay. No. Um, so, um, basically there are certain predictive modeling techniques where you will know exactly which variables are affecting the outcome. Right. For example, in a regression model, you have an equation that looks something like y equals 0.5x1 plus 2x2 plus 3. And so you know that the 0.5 is the degree to which x1 affects the model. And you know that right. two, 2 is the degree at which x2 affects the models. Um, and... You know, any variables that didn't make it into the model, they're just not important. Um, so for certain predictive modeling techniques, you will know exactly what affects the outcome. However, um, for the predictive model that determines um, if the exchange will end in a double, um, that's something called a support vector machine. Okay. And... Tell us about support vector machines, because they sound fascinating. And can I build one in my shed? Um, if you know Python, you can do it right on your computer. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, I know it sounds really cool, right? It's like it does, this yeah. really cool, cool kind of sci-fi sounding um, technique. With, with cogs um, and gears and levers and pulleys and things. Definitely. Yeah, but um, this is this is something that I feel a visual would help with quite a bit and um, I include one in in the article but basically if you think about a graph that has x and y and there's data points on it and let's say the data points belong to two groups in this case it would be double or not double what the support vector machine does is it tries to find a line that mm -hmm. separates the two groups on the graph Okay. Um, and um, if the line is linear, uh, so like a, an actual straight line, then you actually can say which variables affect the model and to what degree. Right. However, when I tried making it use a, a straight line, um, it crashed my computer. Um, okay. It, 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 it couldn't do it. Um, so I had to use a different, um, they call them kernels. Um, so instead of using a linear kernel, I had to use what's called um, an RBF kernel. Um, 
And that one doesn't give you like an equation for the line. So you don't get the 0.5 or the two. You don't even know which variables are being used in the model. Um, so, so basically you would just give the model the data and it would do its thing and it would output a result, but you have no idea what's going on for it to calculate that result. So have you actually tried, you know, seeing whether this prediction thing works by like at a tournament, um, having the data in and seeing whether it will predict whether the next hit will be a double or not. Cause that would be f- fascinating. And presumably it's a percentage, right? Like there's a 63% chance of it being a double or a 72% chance of it being a double or a, is that how it works? Um, so for certain models, mo- most of the models will output a binary yes or no. Okay. And sometimes it's based on like a percentage um, and you can set the threshold so you can say, okay, if there's greater than a 50% chance, then yes, it, you can, you'll output yes, it'll be a double. Or you can fine tune okay. it to say, if there's a 75% greater chance, then yes, it'll be a double. Um, but that's not quite how the support vector machine works. It just outputs a, a yes or a no. Okay. Um, so... Um, uh, is it actually accurate? I mean, have you, have you tested it? So um, I don't remember the exact numbers from the article, um, but yes, it's accurate. However, accuracy isn't always the best metric um, to use to determine if a model is successful. So okay. um, basically, doubles happen only about 15% in about 15% of the exchanges. Okay. So if you have a model that says everything is not a double, because that's what happens in 85% of the cases, then your model is going to be 85% accurate. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So there are other um, metrics such as... um, they're called precision and recall, which basically take into consideration the the balance between um, between predicting something as a double versus not at a, as a double. Okay. Um, and so um, basically, the way that I'd explain it is, you know, you want to look at all three of the metrics to determine whether or not your model is a good model. Um, And by those metrics, um, it is a good model. Okay, so how would you actually use it? Uh, That's the thing. Uh, (laughs) Or would you not? Is it just like a a thought experiment? (laughs) It it ended up, well, this was kind of like me trying to prove Sean wrong because Sean... (laughs) (laughs) Proving Sean wrong is very difficult. He's very uh, clever and he has a lot of data and he knows what to do with it. So yeah, good luck. I hope I hope you were successful well, at tweaking his nose. The, <laughs> the the entire joke is that Sean, he he's just an engineer and engineers are like really bad statisticians. Okay. And I'm a da- I'm a data scientist. So like I know what I'm doing. And just because Sean couldn't make it work doesn't mean that I can't. Well, that's fair. Um so um, 
that was kind of like the running joke uh, while I was doing this was I'm only doing it to prove Sean wrong because, you know, I, I came up with this idea and I thought, oh, this could be a really cool article. And the first thing he said to me was, this is pointless. I've already looked into it. There's nothing that predicts doubles. And and I said, I'll take that challenge. Um, so, you know, the idea is, as I as I was explaining before, that, you know, having a model that's predictive is great. But if you can't learn what what to do with it or like how to apply it and the application would be be able to coach certain behaviors under certain situations right. that show you're going to double, um, then, you know, what's what's the point in having a model? Um, basically, the only thing that you could do with this, and I've joked with Sean that he needs to do this, is you build the model in scorecard and after every exchange it'll indicate whether or not the next one is likely to be a double and so the table the table staff during the event just sh shouts out like look out for doubles uh, okay. because uh yeah you there's because it is that black box you don't really have insight into what you can do to improve your sword fighting game okay so it has, so, at, at the moment, it therefore has a kind of academic interest rather than any kind of practical application for coaches. That is a good way to look at it. Um, but I still take it as a win because I was able to predict doubles and Sean is wrong. <laughs> and Sean being wrong is the point, right? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, here's a thought. Um, would it be possible, like, let's say you know there's going to be a big tournament where there's going to be loads of data generated. Um collect that data, find all the doubles in the data, and then use all the data available before the double occurs, run it into the machine. Does it correctly predict the double or not? Mm -hmm. That would be really interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, I mean, these these predictions, um, when you use the model, they, like, it doesn't take a minute to, to run the data through the model and get your prediction. It takes a, a fraction of a millisecond to run it through the model. So it's really fast. Mm -hmm. um, however, tournaments also like to run fast, be on time. Um, of course, yeah. So I don't know if it would necessarily be a good idea to try to test it out at a tournament in real time. Um, but you could test it after the fact. Yeah, you can test it after the fact. And, um, you know, the way... The, the way that I did the, uh, built the model, it actually kind of does that already because okay. what you're, uh, what you do when you're building a predictive model is you split up your data into what they call training data sets and testing data sets. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's just say you split the data 50, 50, your model will learn, um, It'll, it'll build itself on the 50% of the data that's the training data. Um, and then you use the testing data to say whether or not your model is accurate. Right. Um, so basically, if I were to, you know, run all of, uh, you know, Combat Con is one of the next big tournaments that's coming up. If I just run Combat Con's data through the model, that's essentially running it through another test data set. Yeah. Um, I have uh, I have joked with Sean that 
if he wants to sit down and watch like 10 different matches and call out before the exchange if he thinks something is a double versus not a double we can we can record that and um we can see if he predicts it better than the model if all of his that would be interesting uh, decade of hema experience and coaching and uh does better than my model that would be uh, really really interesting yeah so if if anyone wants to do that to see if they outperform my model we can we can have an arrangement we can <laughs> that out excellent excellent um now things if if the event is running with scorecard and your model is built into it if the coaches have access to the the screen that is that the bout is being run on if they can like look over the scorekeeper's shoulders right there could be a little thing that pops up saying a double is likely and they could have a very quick word with their fences saying ah, don't you dare double this next time um i mean uh it is certainly doable to build that into scorecard um but sean's busy so <laughs> yeah, we've, we've we've joked about it um but you know it it could work exactly the way that's intended to where the coach goes, you're going to double, better not do it. Or it could just make a fighter more self-conscious and right. yeah, more likely not, to do it. It's not, it's not actually always helpful um, to be, to be coached at, at the time. Um, yeah. Cause it, I, to my mind, the thing that is most useful in preventing doubles I find is getting the fencers to concentrate on controlling their opponent's weapon. If that is their main objective, doubles are a lot less common because they're not thinking about hitting the person, they're thinking about controlling the weapon first and then hitting them. And you only ever get a double when you strike without controlling the weapon, your opponent's weapon first. So, but that's boring, frankly. <laughs> that's the problem with it, is it's, it's, it works. It, it's the best way I've come across in, I don't know, 20 odd years of doing this for a living to get students to not double but it's got no glamour to it. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think the best way not to double is to just think about offense and defense simultaneously. Um, just keep in mind that you need to make yourself safe um, yeah. before Controlling you do. Your opponents, yeah, control the weapon mm -hmm. and then strike. It's the same thing. Um, so you're, you already spent a huge amount of time um, on this sort of predicting doubles thing. Do you have any other projects in the work? Yeah, so um, I have two articles that I'm working on right now. Um, one of them is actually goes back to um, kind of like the women's tournament aspect. And um, basically, it's like a calculator of sorts, um, where it says, like, if you were to add a women, women's tournament, to your event offerings, how many women would you get to sign up? Right. So, um, and Sean's actually thinking about adding that to scorecard um, because uh, here's a here's an interesting um, story. So, um, Sean he lives in Michigan. He uh, teaches for a school called Ars Gladii, and they just had their first ever tournament called the AGO Open. And um, 
Sean was not going to add a women's tournament to it because it's their first year. He doesn't know how many, how much interest there's going to be. Um, so he wasn't going to add a women's tournament. But based on what I wrote in that initial women's article, he said, well, here's evidence that if I offer it, people will sign up for it. Right. So he did. And it was one of the top 10 largest women's tournaments ever. Wow. That's fantastic. So, um, you know, he, he thought it would be a good idea to encourage other event organizers who are thinking, well, maybe you should add a women's tournament. Um, he he think he thought it would be a good idea to like kind of show an estimate of if you offered this, how many women would sign up. Right. So that's one of the articles I'm working on. Um, I've already built the predictive model for it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of sitting down and writing the article um, <laughs> at this point. Um, so that's one that's in the works. Um, and then another one that's in the works, um, I kind of want to keep it a little bit of a secret, um, okay. but I'll, I'll throw out the kind of title that I'm thinking of, um, and it's, uh, Do Swords Make You Look Cool? Oh my God. Well, of course they so, do. Everyone knows they make you look cool. That's why we do it, right? Well, but can we, can we prove it with numbers? Well, that's an interesting question. How would you measure the coolness added to a person by a sword? Well, that's what you're going to have to wait to find out. <laughs> uh, okay, when is this article coming out? Um, Do you have so any idea? I'm going to say maybe another one to two months. Now, there was something else in your bio that, that completely baffled me. And so I thought I would just ask you straight out. What is a trophy guide writer? What is a trophy? What is a guide? What is a trophy guide? I know what we're talking about. <laughs> sure. So, um, my my biggest hobby um, before I came back to Hema um, is video games. Okay. I play a ton of video games, and um, I play on the PlayStation platform, and they have. Um, achievement in the games called trophies okay. basically um basically they're they're things like oh uh defeat x number of enemies and you get a trophy okay. or get to this part of the story and you get a trophy um and so um the like if you if you play games to get these trophies you're known as a trophy hunter Okay. And so I'm a trophy hunter. I like um I like getting the trophies. It makes me feel like I've done everything the game has to offer. It's also a little bit of a challenge um because some of the trophies only like 5% of the people who play this game get them. Um so I just I really like it. It makes it a bit more it makes the video games a bit more engaging. Okay. Um and so I'm part of a uh, trophy hunters community on a website called PSN Profiles. And P 
people in the community will write guides on how best to obtain the on how best to obtain a game's trophies. Okay. So um, basically, it's including strategies. It's including step-by-step instructions on how to do things. You get screenshots. You get videos of your gameplay, um, and you organize it um, in such a way that people can easily follow along and implement your strategies. So um, I think I have maybe six to ten guides written at this point. Um, And I've won awards for probably about half of them from the, the community. Okay, I see. This, this is a world that I know absolutely nothing about. And <laughs> I, I can't imagine playing a video game and wanting to follow somebody else's instructions as to how to get a trophy more easily. That, that to me would just obviate the entire point of the game, right? Because I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't work very, I'm not very much of a game sort of person. It's like these, these sort of trophies and, and whatnot. They, I don't find them particularly motivating. So, to my mind, uh, it sounds to me like taking something fun and making it into work. <laughs> so, like, but, but the thing is, the thing is, I, I perfectly recognize that I am not representative. <laughs> and, and it's, it's just, it's great fun for me to like see that there's, there's this entire kind of subculture that I know absolutely nothing about. So, um, I'm guessing the trophies themselves, they're uh, what, like little icons or pictures or something that you get in your, game account and is, or is it is there there's no cash involved is there um so yeah you're exactly right about them just being like little digital images that are on the game account um every every game that comes out has a trophy list attached to it and when you unlock the trophy like you get there there's a little noise that plays and in the corner of the screen it'll it'll say you just unlocked this trophy um and then you can go to the digital trophy list and you know see which ones you have and which ones you still have to work on um they're but they're not like um, things you need to progress in the game right it's not like you need to get this special sword to kill this particular monster like they're just they're like yeah uh generally not um there there are like there's obviously different types of trophies that you can get in the game. And so some of them you will get without even trying for them. Some of them you get just for progressing through the story of Mm -hmm. the game. Um, But then there are others where it's like what you said, you need to get this special sword and defeat this boss with that special sword. And then you get a trophy for that. Okay. Um, but You don't need the trophy. The, the trophy itself isn't a necessary thing that you need to get to a different part of the game. It's more like a, a just a, a marker that you've done a particular thing already. That's correct. Yeah. Right, so okay. you don't. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't unlock things in the game. Right. Um, so no. Uh, okay. You don't. You don't. No one. No one has to go for trophies. But more right. than likely, if you play a game, you will get some of them just by. And, and know, for some people, it's. And for some people, it's super motivating. It reminds me a lot of um, sort of habit creation things where you know people are trying to 
lose weight or get fit or study a language or whatever. And they're trying to build habits. For some people, having like, um, like gold stars on the fridge and they get a gold star if they do the thing that day, that really works. And for other people, it doesn't work at all. Um, and it, it strikes me that what these game designers have done is find a way of providing additional external um, validation for the game players for for the subpopulation of the game players who are really motivated by these things. This is like catnip. And can we clearly, there's like entire, you just said, there's like communities around it which, which give out awards for providing guides for, to help you go and get your trophies. So what what are the awards? Um, so the, the, the awards, um, basically your trophy get, just gets a little digital emblem on it saying that it's an exceptional trophy guide or it won first through third place um the uh you also get a small cash award uh we're talking like 25 dollars nothing 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 exorbitant or anything so you're definitely like like the number of hours that you put into these guys. Yeah, you're not um, doing it for the money. <laughs> you're you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it because it's something you enjoy. Um, mm. You're doing it to help other people. Um, so um, yeah, that's 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 the whole awards aspect uh, to it. And you know, as you said, some people find this find like the gold star to be motivating, whereas other people don't. Um, there's a lot of people who start to feel really burnt out and start to find video games not to be fun anymore because they're so focused on getting these achievements. Um, they feel, some people start to feel like it's a chore or it's a job. Um, and so like the, this website that I'm a part of, it's a community, they have a forum and you know, at least once or twice a month, someone starts talking about how burnt out they feel about <laughs> the trophy hunting. Um, like, so, so presumably, if you're feeling burnt out about the trophy hunting, you would stop and go do something else instead. Yeah, I. Uh, for, there's like there's different kinds of trophy. There's like different kinds of trophy hunters, like how. In HEMA, you have, you know, the people who want to go to the tournaments and you have the scholars and you have the people who want to teach. Well, with trophy hunters, you have the people who want to get as many as possible. You have the people who want to get 100% of the trophies. You have the people who only want to get the trophies that only 1% of people can get. So you have different flavors of people within the trophy so, hunting community. So let's say let's say you get one of these very difficult trophies that maybe two percent of players get, and then you then you go and write a guide for how to get that trophy. Wouldn't that piss off everyone who's already got the trophy? Because the whole point of having that trophy is that it's hard to get, and therefore if you make it easy for people, now five percent of players get it, and it's half as valuable to those people as it was before. So a lot of the times when a trophy has such a high rarity, mm-hmm. it's not because, you know, there's some secret method and once you learn the secret method, it becomes easy. It's because those things take a lot of skill. So even uh, okay. if you give even if you give a method or show a video of you doing it or something of that nature, um it doesn't necessarily make it 
easier. Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, you know, I, I have videos of me doing stuff like the Punta Falsa from Fiore and still most people can't do it because it requires precision. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, fascinating. So, all right. You clearly like you do a lot of things, but I am curious as to what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet. You did send me that, and I didn't think about it. <laughs> we can we, you know, if this just creates a, a great long awkward pause, we can just snip it out. <laughs> That's fine. No, just uh, give, give me a give me a second. Yeah, tonight, sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, one, one one quite common answer I get is you know. You act on every every good idea you get, and so there are no good ideas that you haven't acted on yet. Because, um, um, you know, I'm gonna say um, the best idea I haven't acted on yet, um, but really should is getting tested for ADHD. Ah, okay. Um, okay. You know, I I have um, I have a lot of anxiety, and I have a lot of. Um, a lot of things that really fall in line with the ADHD diagnosis. Um, but I haven't gone and gotten officially tested for it yet. Okay. So I really should follow through on that because, you know, life can be better once you, once you uh, figure yes. out what's going on in your head and, you know, getting whatever assistance you need um, to help through with that. So yeah, mental health is important. And Absolutely. and you know, several, on that. several of my previous guests have done that. I mean, the one I'm thinking of immediately because I saw him just a couple of weeks ago in, in the States was Kaya Sadowski, who um, got quite recently diagnosed and got started on one of the ADHD drugs, which is basically an amphetamine, which you'd think would just make you wired and crazy. But just the way he describes it, it's like suddenly all the shit you have to wade through to get anything done just isn't there anymore. And you can just go and do it. It's your, your brain, your body. You do exactly what you want. But, um, I would certainly, from the experience of my friends, I would, I would encourage you to act on that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I have my, uh, I have a therapist. Um, I have a psychiatrist for, my anxiety medication and talking with my anxiety, uh, my psychiatrist, she suggested that I go get this uh, ADHD thing evaluated. And, you know, it's a, it's a really good idea and just need to follow through with it because, you know, as you said, it, it can really help when you get medications or um, figure out habits um, to help you. So like getting on medication for anxiety, I am a much better per person for it. So, <laughs> right. um, you know, if things can be better by, you know, getting, getting that sort of assistance, then should do it. Right. And, you know, I, I have a friend who, um, not, it's not ADHD, but he had basically panic attacks and things, really severe kind of work related nervous breakdown anxiety i mean they the, the ambulance people had to carry him off a train and because mm. he was basically curled up on a corner and couldn't move right and he's like you know if it was my liver that stopped working properly i would just go to the doctor and it would be completely fine and my brain stopped working properly and the doctors came along or whatever, and now i'm doing these certain things and i have this medication blah, 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 and everything's a lot better 
And there's a whole lot of really unnecessary kind of not even, I, I don't even understand really why it exists, but there's this like stigma around, well, my brain isn't working quite right. So I go to the doctor and the doctor gives me this out of the other and now things are better. Like if we were talking about your lungs or your liver, it would just be a no brainer. But because we have this sort of this weird cultural thing around mental health and how, oh, well, you should just bustle through or just calm down or take a deep breath or whatever. We kind of, we kind of steered away from actually just going and getting professional intervention when we need it. I mean, I think a lot of the times um, it's because it's something that you can't necessarily see. Like Mm. your arm is broken. You can see your arm is broken, but you can't see that your brain is broken. Um, There's like an entire discussion around like invisible disabilities. Um, Like, for example, some people who have like seizures, they can get the disabled placards for their car to be able to park in the handicapped spots. And some people like when they get out of their car, they're, they're not on crutches. They're not in a wheelchair. Nothing looks wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And so like, I've heard stories of people who go and say, that's a handicapped spot. You're not supposed to park there. And it's like, well, I have a handicap. You just can't see it. So I think that's where a lot of the stigma is around, you know, mental health, disorders is you can't see it um and you know being that it's a mental thing a lot of people think well if it's just a mental thing then i can mentally get through it i don't need anything tangible to get through it um and 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 sometimes you know some mental health things are fixed by just you know talking to a therapist or you know there are there are other interventions other than chemistry that that can work in some cases but you know, I'm 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 a big fan. I'm a big favor of drugs in all of their forms. I mean, if it if it helps, like why not? Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. So 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 the best idea you haven't acted on is going and getting tested for ADHD. I think that's an excellent one to to go and act on. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. My last question is: If you were given a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? You know, because I'm a data person, um, I I would say definitely anything to do with data collection. Um, I think something that could be really interesting is to be able to, like, record everyone's um, fights or be able to record practices and be able to hire people to document things that they see going on in these videos um, to get data points that, you know, don't get recorded in something like HEMA scorecard. Like, like, uh, for example, being able to say, oh, uh, left-handed people tend to do better in fights against right-handed people. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't collect data on left-handed people. You uh, don't have that data point. But if you're watching a video, you can see that they're left-handed. So I just think anything that would improve data collection and data analysis could be very insightful. Um, Yeah, so I think that's where I'd put put my money. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling to see how you would collect that data. Right. Um, 
You would just have video transcribers who watch the the videos and look for certain things um, within okay. those videos. And, and what would you do with the data? Um, you could you could use it to help coach or train people. Okay. Um, like for example, um, there was an article recently written by Stephen Cheney for Sword STEM where he did. Um, he did an analysis of what I, I think he calls them um, practice games, but basically he um, he had two people, he had all of his students in pairs fighting against each other. The uh, one person could only use one particular guard and the yeah. other person could do whatever it is they want to try to break that one um, one guard. So um, in the end, he found that pretty much if you are relegated to just one guard, you um, like no guard is really better than any other guard. So I think that's a very interesting thing to think about because now you, you don't have to have some misconception that, oh, it's better to be in bomb tog than it is to be in plow or ox or something of that nature so i think it will help sword fighters become better competitors if they have data that shows or that can you know elucidate um certain guards or cuts or should you be aggressive should you be defensive um anything anything of that nature um I think would be very useful um, just to help people with their training, to help instructors and coaches with what they want to to teach in their classes. Mm. I mean, I, I've often thought that I should have I should have gathered a lot more data when I was teaching um, over the last you know, twenty years or so, because there would be patterns that I would be able to see, like um, to be able to maybe anticipate when, say someone who's been training a couple of years is going to hit a patch where, where they're going to get frustrated and possibly their, their chance of quitting goes up. But if I can just get them through that patch, then they'll sort of settle into the next couple of years of training or whatever. And so being able to kind of head off trouble before it starts, that might be, might be useful. But I'm not a data person, so I, I didn't collect. I, mean, I have actually loads and loads of attendance data for my school. Um, and I've done absolutely nothing with it ever. <laughs> so, well, so um, you know, you you said you would like to, you know, prevent people from getting frustrated and quitting. Um, yeah. One project that I've worked on um, at my job um, was with nurse attrition at hospitals. Oh, okay. so trying to figure out if there are any indicators that a nurse is going to qu- quit their job. Nurse turnover is a huge thing in the sure. U.S. Um, well, it's very, very hard work and very, very difficult conditions for not very much money. Very hard, very difficult, very thankless. Um, you don't get the glory like the doctors do. Um, and, yeah, they're just burnt out. They're overworked. Um, mm. So, you know, trying to figure out what kind of markers there are for a nurse to leave um, 
very important because maybe you can improve those conditions. Yeah. Um, for example, one of the things that we found was an indicator was how many hours they have worked in the last six months. Mm-hmm. You work a lot of hours and a lot of overtime, you're going to feel burnt out and you're more like equipped. want to leave. So, you know, figuring out something like fighter attrition or, you know, how what causes a fighter to want to leave HEMA, um, if you collect the right data, you might be able to figure it out. Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think getting people to transcribe videos is, would be a very laborious way to do it. Um, I'm, there must be, <laughs> there must be a simpler. I mean, if, if anyone has like any ideas and, and, um, you know, send them, send them to me, send them to Sean. <laughs> um, you well, know, I mean, part yeah. of the, Okay, we, we should we, we don't we don't give out guests emails and things on the show because privacy oh. and whatnot. But no, no, no. But if anyone wants me to forward stuff to you, they can send stuff to me, and everyone can get my email from the show. That's fine. Um, and I so yes, listeners, if if you have ideas that you want me to send to Carrie, just send them to me, and I'll send them along. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, there's also the the Sword Stem page on Facebook. You can ping through that. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, if anyone has data or, you know, has an idea that they think could be explored analytically, you know, I'm not going to promise that (laughs) I'll look into it. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have all of the, I, I don't know what everyone else finds interesting to look at. Um, and if I don't have the data, then I, can't do anything with it um so you know guy you just said you had attendance data um i don't know uh, <laughs> what i i can't think of anything that'll be that could be done with that but uh off the top of my head but you know i might be able to think of something <laughs> <laughs> okay um uh, brilliant well well you heard it here first folks so if you have an interesting research question and uh, perhaps a data set to ask questions of, then um, send them to me and I'll send them along to Carrie. And she doesn't promise, but she might take a look. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Carrie. It's been great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carrie. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And just a reminder, go to guywindsor.net forward slash TSG22 for 20% off the audiobook bundle of The Theory and Practice of Historical Martial Arts. Offer ends September 15th, 2022. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accent originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. You can, of course, find my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook in both original pronunciation and modern pronunciation at swordschool.com forward slash listen. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Alessia Pagani and Jack Gassman, who run Horsemen of Air, 
an equestrian training school and medieval combat academy outside Wexford in Ireland. And we get into all sorts of details about how we train horses and natural horsemanship and how Jack researches German longsword, all that sort of thing. It's a fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss it. So subscribe to this episode wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, if you have a minute, please do rate the show. And if you have an even extra minute, do leave a review. It really does help. And of course, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends, put it on social media, do all the usual stuff so that other people who might like it can get to hear about it. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.